Brighton Talk Sex, the sex education we never had at school. You're listening to Brighton Talk Sex. Sponsored by She Said Boutique, bringing to you the finest selection of designer lingerie, burlesque fashion, adult toys and erotica. Welcome to Brighton Talk Sex, and this afternoon I'm with Mike Lusada. Hi Michelle, thanks Hi. for having me on. <laughs> That's all right, it's really wonderful to meet you. Um, I would like to ask you about the world of trauma that you are supporting others to work through, mm. and what specifically trauma means to you. Mm. Yeah, great, great questions, thank you. Um, I have a really simple definition of trauma, which is anything that overwhelms the system. Mm-hmm. Anything that we perceive is asking more of us than we think or feel that we have the capacity to deal with in that moment. Right. Um, so it leads to feelings of overwhelm. Um, and um, I also like Peter Levine's definition of trauma, um, where he says that trauma is a disorder of being unable to be in the here and now. Mm-hmm. So what trauma does is that it takes us out of presence. It takes us out of embodied presence significantly. And by extension, because it takes us out of presence, it takes us out of connection. Mm. We're not connected with ourselves, and we can't, of course, be connected with other people. Mm. So if we're talking about sex, intimacy and relationship, those are two things which are really core to that. The ability to be present with yourself and in your body and the ability to be present with the other person Mm. and in connection. So trauma really messes with those things. So it doesn't necessarily have to be sexual trauma as in a sexual abuse it could be any form of trauma that's causing disruption to be able to relate what um what happens with trauma is kind of consistent that it creates fragmentation in our psyche and this uh inability to be present um and the sources of trauma are unfortunately you know manifold there's many many different types there's sexual trauma, there's emotional trauma, there's physical trauma. Um, there's also other things like medical trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, so any invasive medical procedure like a surgical operation where the skin is cut or there's something being put into the body in that way, um, those processes are, are actually trauma for the mm-hmm. nervous system. And they may be necessary and life-saving, but they're still trauma for the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can create dysregulation and disruption. Um, and then there's also broader things like uh, social trauma. So if you have a particular identification with a social status of like, I've got a high paid job, I'm respected, I'm the boss of this, and you lose your job, that can also be experienced as trauma. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the broader things which are um, moving away from the personal more into the collective. Um, so you've got ancestral trauma. Um, and I don't mean in some kind of, you know, new age way mm. of, of trauma from ancestors, but quite literally there's growing bodies of evidence that show that uh, trauma is inherited through family lines. Mm. So and they've done a lot of studies for people who survived the Holocaust and the children and grandchildren of them, comparing their nervous systems to, uh, you know, regular subjects. And they've, they've seen that there's a huge impact mm. from that inherent trauma. Mm-hmm. Um and then, and then, of course, we've got the collective trauma, what it means to 
be a woman in the Western culture or in the world today, or what it means to be a man in this culture, um, what it means just to be a human being, all, all that we're enduring right now, and and you know at a bigger scale the planetary trauma that's happening around what we're doing to the earth right now and the changes that society and civilization is going through, mm. um, which I think, uh, which is also laying down another level of trauma for people. Mm. So there's trauma at lots of different levels, mm. um, but they all have a kind of consistent impact, taking us out of our bodies, taking us out of connection. Mm. So what kind of symptoms do you come across it, it varies a lot from person to person, but um, lack of lack of uh, feeling embodied, lack of uh, uh, feeling one's own body. So in sexual intimacy, you might have a, a lack of sensation because the mm. body goes to a kind of numbness if you check out. Um, it might be a sense of uh, depersonalization, like I'm not real, I'm not a real person. Uh, or derealization where the world doesn't seem real. Mm. Very often people who've got trauma experience that they're viewing the world through uh, a filter, like there's a glass sheet in yes. front of them. And mm. so there's a, there's a sense of remove. Do you also hear like a desire that that person wants to go home? Yeah, and they're, they're, of course, because because trauma is not always, but almost, almost always uh, relational. Mm. And so it's, it's, it's something that's happened as a violation of personal boundaries and, uh, and what Stephen Porges calls a co-regulation violation, which is I have my nervous system regulating itself and you have your nervous system regulating itself. But if I do something to you that causes your uh, nervous system to dysregulate, it's also it's going to impact between us and it creates a disruption between us. Hmm. And so there's a there's a co-regulate a, a, dysregula- a dysregulation that happens mm-hmm. between the two nervous systems, mm-hmm. and um, it's in that in that connective dysregulation that we don't want. It's not safe for us to be in connection with other people. So uh, we either want to um, like please them. Uh, to to suit to calm them to to uh, accommodate them mm-hmm. uh, in order to make ourselves feel safe, or we go into avoidant patterns like uh, withdrawing, freezing, dissociating, um, occasionally fighting, but that's a that's a less strong response to trauma. Mm. So you mean like people can have a habitual pattern of being a people pleaser? Yeah. Or a habitual pattern of completely not being able to be in a relationship at all. Yeah. Like an isolation. Absolutely. So people withdraw, they get isolated. Or they lose their own sense of self because that's also something that happens in trauma mm. is that um, the idea that I have a cohesive self, that I am me, gets shattered by the invasion of trauma. Mm. And uh, therefore I don't know who I am, mm. especially in relation to others. And my need for safety will, will override my need for clear boundaries. And the way that I might create safety in such a situation is by keeping you happy and pleasing you. For example, if you have an alcoholic father who is nice when he's sober, violent and aggressive or abusive when he's drunk, mm-hmm. you want to make sure that you keep on the good side of him and you want to make sure when you see him 
your radar is going to be very acute to whether is it safe to be with dad right now or not. Mm. And so you learn both, uh, in a sense, you learn the great gift of empathy, which is to you know feel the other person, because a lot of your attention is out there on the others feeling like, is it safe to be around them? Um, uh, on the other hand, um, because so much of your attention is out there with other people, you lose connection with yourself. And you also get very good potentially at keeping the other person happy because so long as dad's happy, he's not going to be violent. Hmm. A lot of that is about losing connection with yourself. Hmm. And it's all about coming out of authentic connection. Hmm. So how do these kind of things display in a relationship? Lots of, lots of ways from subtle to (laughs) glaringly obvious. Um, more subtle ones are um, the kind of acquiescing, pleasing, submitting to the other person's will, submitting to what they want, not really knowing what you want. Um, uh, other ones would include things like um, not really being in your body, not mm-hmm. not really feeling yourself, not really knowing. Um, some people report the experience of not really knowing whether they're hungry or not until suddenly they're like, I need to eat now. Mm. Um, because they're not actually tuned into their body and they're not feeling the subtle changes. It's like, mm, I'm beginning to get hungry, which is would be a normal healthy response. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so not listening to the signs of the body. Um, and sometimes uh, having a disconnect from feelings as they're expressed externally but perhaps having a lot of sensitivity to what's going on inside. Mm -hmm. If you've got a lot of um, sensitivity and awareness of what's happening in the environment, uh, what other people are feeling, then there's a reasonable chance that you've got some kind of uh, something, you've learned that somewhere. So there's a reasonable chance you've got some kind of trauma in your history. Mm. Do you um, support people to become more in tune with them? selves before considering relationship is what what I mean is like knowing more about their boundaries Mm. feeling sensation in their body before you'd go anywhere and taking them how how it is to be in a relationship depends on the individual and of course if someone's in a relationship and they're Mm. you know they're really traumatized by something from their past um you can't Mm. really say to them come out of that relationship (laughs) (laughs) go in isolation for a month go and live in a cave um is it you more like supporting them to build a relationship with themselves yes yeah very much that yeah Mm -hmm. um because it's really important to have that knowing yourself that connection with your own body your connection with your own inner experience and landscape and and then once you've done that, you can start to build the congruence between the inner and the outer experience. Mm. I'm sitting here feeling vulnerable, let's say, and I show you that I'm feeling vulnerable rather than pretending, putting on a smiley face and pretending mm. like, I feel really good about life, whereas inside <laughs> I'm going, oh, shit, I'm scared senseless. Um, and so allowing that congruence um, and and... It takes a lot of courage to do that, of course, because there's lots of things we learn in our childhood that we're not allowed to show. Mm. Vulnerability, fear, anger, happiness sometimes, Mm. Um, sexual desire, certainly. Mm. And um, so we have to overwrite that old programming and and allow ourselves to be who we are. But the journey for all of that, for me, is about coming down into our bodies. 
So one of the things with trauma is that we very usually, very typically get disconnected from our body um, because the experience of really feeling what's in our body is overwhelming and too much by definition. Um, and therefore, the intelligent safe defense mechanism against that is to come out of our body. Mm. Um, and I think it's also important for people to recognize if that's their experience that's your body and your nervous system doing exactly what it's designed to do to keep you safe and alive. Mm. It's not like you're broken and there's something wrong with you. Your nervous system is absolutely operating in the way it's designed to do. It just happens to have some negative repercussions, like perhaps having challenges around relationship and intimacy. Mm. But it's not that there's something wrong with you. And of course, it can be recalibrated so you can come back into your body and come back into connection. But when we start that journey down into our bodies, I, I feel that it's like a plane coming down to land. And when the plane comes down to land, it goes through layers of cloud. And those layers of cloud are layers of memory, emotion, and potentially trauma that we're storing in our system. Mm. And of course, when you're in the cloud, it feels like there's only cloud. I can't see anything. It's terrifying. Um, but it's important to remember that it's just an experience and it will pass. Hmm. You're not, you're not having, you're not going back into the trauma again. No, it happened. It's not It happened. It had a beginning, a middle and an end. And that's Mm. something else that happens in trauma is that our hippocampus, which um, regulates that we know when stuff happened, i.e. in the past, um, gets overwhelmed by trauma. And Mm. so it thinks that the bad thing that happened back then is still happening now. Mm. So part of the recalibration is often to help people understand that they're here in the present now and that they're not back in the bad situation from the past. Mm. So as you start to come into your body, you go through these layers of cloud um, and then you come down into the deeper experience of yourself. And from an energetic perspective, uh, it feels to me like, you know, our body is a, a vessel for life force energy and, um, you know, if we were all completely open and relaxed and, and, you know, kind of fully healthy and integrated state, we'd all essentially be in a kind of life force energy orgasm situation at all mm. times. Um, and of course, we're not because we have negative, negative experiences, whether that's trauma or not. We have limiting self-beliefs, etc., etc. So the channel that our body is for energy starts to contract see it like a, a, a tube or a cylinder coming through our bodies, that's mm. the open channel for our energy. And when we have fear, fear is the nature of fear is contraction. Mm. So as soon as we have fear, we have trauma, we have challenging emotions, we have negative self-beliefs, that channel of energy starts to contract. Now, as you start to drop down into your body, you're going to start to feel all the blockages in the pipe, as it were. Mm. Um, that's another way to talk about those layers of cloud that the plane mm. goes down through. But as you go through them and you experience them gently and you release them, the, the, the channel, the vessel of your energy pipe starts to open and expand and you can feel more aliveness in there. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that's the healing journey is to kind of unblock the pipe and allow more life force energy to come through. So we gradually allow ourselves to feel more and more sensation. We allow ourselves to feel more and more sensation and we allow ourselves to feel more of ourself. Mm-hmm. Because one thing that happens in trauma is there's a place I better not go. 
yeah. in myself. Well, it feels like a painful place Because it's go. very painful. It is mm. a painful place to go. Mm. Um, and again, your brain is trying to keep you safe by telling you don't go there. It's a painful place. But of course, that is a protection mechanism, which is useful, but also limiting because it means there's places in your psyche you can't go. Mm. And so you don't fully inhabit yourself. And I feel like the journey for everyone is to fully come into their bodies and mm -hmm. fully inhabit the fullness of the extraordinariness of their new, everyone's unique being. Mm -hmm. To me, this is, you know, the, the, the definition of eros energy, uh, of life force energy is the drive to be uniquely extraordinarily yourself in all of its fullness. Mm -hmm. And that expresses itself in lots of different ways. Mm. In modern culture, eros has come to reductively be associated with the erotic. Yes. But it has a much broader meaning in my understanding. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's just about that, like living a full, real, raw, passionate life. Yes, absolutely. You um, said a word there that I really kind of picked up on and it's broken. Um, a little while ago when you were talking, you were saying that people can feel that they're broken. Mm, yeah. And that is a really big theme that I've noticed that mm. people believe that and do you think that's kind of a, a society cultural message that we're given you're broken there's a tablet rather than actually you know coming to meet the pain that we go somewhere this idea that we're going mm. to be fixed so therefore we must be broken and often yeah. that broken <laughs> <laughs> that broken is met with a with a with a tablet to yeah. cover up this idea of being broken. So the broken isn't, you know, I'm just yeah. curious yeah. As where, why we've all got this message. Yeah, I think there's, the, so I, I love, I love that inquiry. I think there's so many specious concepts and what you've just outlined as <laughs> a cultural meme around all of this stuff. It's like, we're broken. Uh, no, you're just having the unique experience that you're having. Um, there's some place to get to, to be fixed. No, mm. we're just on a, we're just on an endless journey. Mm -hmm. um, in this life and in my perspective beyond mm -hmm. um, you know just the, the soul's deep journey and it's not a place that we arrive at it's yeah. like here I am I've yes. arrived it's I'm all fixed. over now <laughs> yes. um, because that's not the nature of life the nature of life is is constant change mm. it just shows a language as well yeah. that we use that can then it's so limiting and prescriptive yes and then speaking of prescriptions um of <laughs> course you've got the pharmacological uh, yes. element the big pharma aspect of things of course you know which is not really interested in curing diseases more in creating pharmacological dependence mm. and there's a lot of studies that actually show that uh, all of these um uh, psychopharmacological drugs don't actually work um, so, and they have huge huge detrimental side effects uh, and I also think that a lot of people who are diagnosed as having uh, some kind of mental illness and I have a caution about saying this but um, some or many are also experiencing expanded states of consciousness um, they may be having spiritual awakenings that the western scientific medical community doesn't understand and i'm not saying that everyone who's you know suffering from psychotic episodes is having a spiritual awakening but there's something that happens when we expand our consciousness in whichever way it takes us out of our default mode network the part of our brain that actually creates a sense of identity and ego self um, 
into the unknown. And that's very destabilizing. Mm. And of course, it depends how much resources a person has to be able to cope with those expansions and all the rest of it. But um, I think in some cases, people are, are actually having spiritual experiences and then don't have a frame with which to integrate what's been going on for them, start behaving oddly, and then that gets diagnosed as psychotic or something on some mm-hmm. kind of spectrum. So I think there's a there's a lot of problems with all of that. And I'm not saying, just to be clear, I'm not saying that there isn't such a thing as mental illness, mm-hmm. um, because you know clearly there are people who, who have real psychological and uh, hormonal imbalances and all kinds of stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting to look at these things with a different lens and just see, you know, what else might be going on. Mm, absolutely. Do you approach people with more of like a body-mind medicine? I mean, we've just spoken about the way that uh, modern medicine meets us with the tablets or yeah. purely counselling. But if the trauma is because there's a, a, a not wanting to be in the body, then surely some kind of body medicine needs to be included yeah. in, in this. It, it's, it always struck me as really weird that Western science has parsed out the psychological and emotional and the physiological, mm. like they're two separate things. And clearly that's not the case because, um, you know, every, every client has both a mind and a body mm-hmm. and they're an integrated holistic organism consisting of at least those two parts. Yes. And we can talk about, you know, what else, what else is there, but they've definitely at least got a mind and a body. Mm. Um, and what I see consistently from my work, and I'm sure you do in yours, is that the things that affect us psychologically also have an impact on the body. Mm. I, I feel like the soul, sorry, the body is the soul and our history made visible. And so when we touch someone's body, we're also touching their soul at a very deep level. We're touching the, the physical manifestation of that deep, essential part of themselves. Um, and that's actually, if you think about that, it's a very beautiful um, idea, beautiful way to consider touch and, and bodies. Uh, but it's for me, it's impossible that... Um, stuff that shows up in the body doesn't have some underlying psychoemotive root to it Mm. because what i found time and again is you know illnesses and diseases and um even like muscle simple things to muscle tensions and stuff like that if you go in and explore them at the body level what comes is there's an emotional root cause underneath all of that there's a belief or an experience or something that's caused that to occur. And you can say, well, you know, things just happen physically to people. People have, are born with congenital problems or so on. And that's also true, of course. But, you know, very in very large part, it feels like uh, a lot of the things that our bodies are showing up really arise out of these unexpressed psychological and emotional things mm-hmm. that then kind of filter their way down into the body. It's almost like um, a thought is quite a light form of energy um, and it condenses over time into physical matter. Mm. And as it condenses into physical matter, it takes form which has some impact on the body. 
Mm. Um, again, you know, a simple example would be fear is contraction, right? We all know that when you get scared, you want to curl up in a ball. Mm. Um, or you feel a contraction in your gut or in your chest or your throat or something like that. And we're all familiar with that experience. So, you know, if you're holding fear on a habitual basis, you're going to be creating physical contractions in some points in your body. Now, if you hold physical contractions long enough in a certain place, you're reducing blood supply, you're reducing essential nutrients to that area. Something's going to go wrong at some point. Or that part is contracted and it's pulling on another part or putting pressure on another part. Mm. And that in turn is going to have an impact. Mm. So it's kind of easy to see how, how uh, emotional stuff has a physical impact. And it's quite astonishing to me that if I talk to most doctors in, in like most GPs <laughs> in the Western world about this stuff, they, they have no understanding of it at all, which is kind of weird. Yeah, I find it crazy myself. It's like the one place a person doesn't want to go is the place where they clearly need to go. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. body. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. And we, you know, we li- we all know that we live in a culture which supports the output of the mind rather than the the excellence of, mm. of you know the joy of being in the body. And what a field of intelligence is being missed out as well. This Absolutely. Intelligence. Yeah. 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 And I think this is one of the problems that we're experiencing in society right now in, in uh, human planetary consciousness mm. is we've kind of reached the limitations of where we can go with the mind alone yes absolutely and coming out of connection with our bodies as western culture has mm. done is what is causing us to be able to despoil the planet in the way that we are and cause all the problems to the planet because when you're in your body you're going to feel the environment that you're in because your body doesn't exist it's separate from the mm. land you walk on, the air that you breathe, the water that you drink. No. And so as you get more conscious, more sensitive in your body, you're going to start feeling like, ah, I don't want to drink this water. Mm. This is not good water. Ah, this air is not good for me. I need to move somewhere. Mm. Um, and move their body. And, and, move, <laughs> and, move, and move their body as well. Mm. Um, but but this, this environmental point, I think, is really, really key because when we come out of connection with our body, we come out of connection with the environment. <clears throat> and that enables us to do what we do to the planet. Mm-hmm. And we're reaching the limitation of how much we can get away with just being in the mind. Yes. And we're realizing like, oh shit, this isn't going to work long term. Mm. And so we do need to come back in our bodies. We do need to come back into connection with the environment mm. at a very real practical level. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, the future of humanity is is looking pretty, pretty grim, yeah. unfortunately. I also believe like personally who can't keep growing up without growing down as well there's this yes. whole thing <laughs> growth we, we growth goes something. both ways it does go yeah both yeah ways. absolutely yeah. and so you know we we go into the the super conscious the higher unconscious um as we expand into those higher states our consciousness also goes into the deeper the lower states the formative conscious a formative unconscious um we expand both our light and our dark in equal measure. Mm-hmm. And and this is part of why people don't want to do those things because um, you can't just have uh, a transcendent experience without also facing the, you know, the, the darkness and the shadow. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need to be able to tolerate sitting with both. Yes. And, of course, you know, a lot of what we're not feeling is all of that 
darkness, whether it's our trauma or something else, mm. that is experienced through our body. Again, that goes down to maybe culture and medicine in that tablets, for example, is creates supported avoidance. Yeah, absolutely. Rather yeah. than meeting our pain, we avoid our pain. There's a huge, huge culture of avoiding pain. Yeah. And, you know, we remove death in Western culture as far as we possibly can away, <laughs> unlike in India where yes. the bodies are lying around on, you know, mm. pyres and, you know, on the streets, as it were, um, for people to see. We're, you know, in Western culture, we're not amongst to death. Mm. And so we have this absolute horror of the unseen, which is of, of the abject, which is death, which is that which cannot be spoken about. Mm. And... Um, so we go into denial because to fully recognize our embodiment is to recognize our mortality and it requires us to confront death. So again, you know, that's something that most people in the West don't really want to do. No. It's always, it's, it was interesting, you know, have a, have a podcast about sexuality and I often end up speaking about death. Well, but for me, they're, very, they're totally linked. They're two sides of the same coin. Absolutely. You can't have, you can't have sex, which is life force energy without death. No. And that's our cycle of life as and well. And that's the cycle of life. You know, if you want to understand how it is to be human, just go and look at nature. Nature will teach you all the things you need to know, right? Mm. The seasons, everything changes. There's constant change. So we constantly change. Mm. Things are born, things live, they die. That's going to happen with us. Mm-hmm. We, need to, we need to be willing to confront that reality in ourselves if we really want to live fully. Because you can't live fully unless you really understand death. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I believe it's death that has taught me to live fully. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And that's why, you know, so obviously if people have like near misses or something Mm -hmm. with death, they feel like every I'm going to make every day count. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's also why people go out and do uh, extreme sports because like climbing up the face of Yosemite or stuff like that, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Because when when you're that close to death, if you make a mistake, it's fatal. That's when you're going to feel most alive. Yes. So it's it's we have to be able to we have to be willing to put ourselves in the face of these places mm. and let ourselves feel all of that in order to feel the fullness of our eros energy, the fullness of our aliveness, mm. the fullness of what an extraordinary experience it is just to be alive, just to have a body. Mm. yeah it hurts sometimes and it feels shit and it's (laughs) you know you know it gets angry and sad and vulnerable and all the rest of it Mm. my god what an incredible experience to be alive i suppose from what you're saying we've got to this point where life isn't a thought life is a feeling and we've maybe lost that along the way that we've been thinking life so much and not feeling it yeah, well, and that supports trauma because we're not wanting to feel anything. Yes, it, yeah, um, it 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 supports the trauma staying in the system. Yes, the thing with trauma is it's less important whether something bad happens to you or not, mm-hmm. and more important how you process it afterwards. Particularly in the ten days following a traumatic event. Mm-hmm. Um, so those people who let's say there's a multiple car pile up on the motorway and many people are impacted. Some people will develop PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Other people will um, kind of get on with their lives in a much healthier way. And the difference is how they respond in their bodies afterwards. So do they they let their bodies complete the natural impulse, which is 
to shake, to cry, to emote, um, to feel all the painful feelings? Or do they pretend like, I'm fine, I'm fine, which mm-hmm. is a very you know, British fine, or Western British. thing to say. <laughs> yes. I'm not going to tell you what it stands for. <laughs> you're in a 20, 20 car pileup and you, you, know, you get out and say, oh my God, how are you? Like, I'm fine. <laughs> no you're really not no. you know? you're traumatized you're distressed you're Fine, emotional you're vulnerable fucking insecure neurotic and emotional, and emotional absolutely <laughs> yeah um and the other important thing about trauma recovery is is community mm. is having people around you that can support you and nourish you with whom you can be authentically yourself and express those feelings and and you know if your body needs to shake or cry or sob or laugh hysterically all of those are really healthy releases of trauma Hmm. um so people who do that and are supported amongst community are much more likely to to you know continue to develop healthily and and not have the trauma continue to impact them Mm -hmm. if we don't have those things particularly in the next 10 days after the traumatic event we're much more likely to develop ptsd right and just because you've got ptsd doesn't mean it can't be resolved but you know if something bad happens god forbid but it's important to recognize you need to listen to your body and mm. let it do what it needs to do mm. in order to release the very intense levels of neurochemicals that have been injected into your body in order for you to survive. Because mm. otherwise those chemicals get stored in the system. They clog up, they clog up the, the energy pipe, if you like, as we were talking about earlier, mm. so that there's less life force available to you. Mm. So we're really not being taught this then, even with no. how sex and intimacy <clears throat> is um, affects how sex and intimacy is affected by trauma. We're still taught to very seek externally the answer, yeah. seek the answer in another, or seek yeah. the answer in medication. When actually the answer to our trauma is internal. Absolutely, and it's internal and external because. Remember that most trauma trauma is a relational violation, mm. and so therefore it also needs to be healed in a in a relational field. Right. Um, and uh, so um, we need to allow ourselves to feel whatever we're feeling internally, mm-hmm. but we also need to be allow to allow ourselves to be held and supported by our loved ones, by friends, by community, um, by um you know people who can do that in a safe and clearly boundaried way um because that is also part of the the relational piece is also part of that healing yeah mm-hmm. so what does your work look like my work is a is is a big range of things um from talk based approach to to working with people who've got intimacy issues and sexual issues um uh to hands on body work but my one of my basic kind of principles is that all sexual issues have at their core an attachment issue. So our childhood developmental wounds mm-hmm. that we learned in our childhood, that we experienced back then, they are what we call first wave. And that first wave is the imprinting of the pattern. And all that happens is that that imprinting of the pattern just plays itself out in our growing, development, developing and adult life. Um, into second wave experiences. So the way that we have relationships as adults Mm. is very highly impacted by that first wave of how we were loved as a child. Mm. And um, So we would choose relationships that 
on the same level of that that love? We're usually trying to replicate the same pattern, but trying to get a different answer, mm. but failing because we keep doing the same thing. Yes. Um, and uh, it's not until we start to become conscious of what we're doing and why we're doing it mm. um, that we can give ourselves the freedom and the possibility to do something differently. Mm. So a lot of the work is about helping people re-regulate their nervous systems because there's a cascade effect from attachment wounding in our childhood that creates a dysregulation in our nervous system a connection it becomes more difficult and um, we either want to withdraw or attack mm-hmm. so uh, simply put we're going to fight or flight there's some other things too but you know um, and and of course that takes us out of the moment takes us out of our bodies takes us out of presence and connection um, so I'm working to help people re-regulate their nervous systems and um, bring them back, like bring them back online so they're available for connection. If I'm doing body work, it's very, very gentle. It's a, it looks a little bit like cranio, but it's a bit different. So it's all fully clothed, non-sexual body work. And even working with sexual issues, I found that there are much more subtle and less invasive ways to heal uh really all the sexual issues that I've that I've come across in my my career without needing to go do internal work mm-hmm. um, and uh, what I'm always aiming to do is to support someone to put together the like the fragmented pieces of their experience which again is something that fragmentation happens in trauma mm-hmm. so when we link up the physical and the emotional and the mental into one cohesive, narrative one cohesive whole that's when integration and healing occurs Mm. so i'm feeling contraction in my stomach uh it makes me feel vulnerable it reminds me of when i was five years old and my brother beat me up Mm. um and i felt like i can't trust men for example Mm. so all that just from a little contraction that someone's holding in their stomach for example Mm. um And it's when we create that cohesive narrative around the whole experience that's felt and experienced through the body and we have a kind of cognitive mental framework or image or memory to hang it on that it's almost like um, things kind of click back in place together. Mm. And, And once something has clicked back in place in that integrated uh, whole way, we can then file it in a different part of our memory. It goes from implicit to explicit memory. It goes from uh, something that might keep coming up in our unconscious in an intrusive way, which is, again, one of the things that happens in trauma. Um, And we're able to file it and go, yeah, that was a really shitty experience. And, you know, here's what I learned from it. Here's here was the gift that it gave me. Here how I've here's how I've developed as a result of it. And you know, it was a horrible thing. And it's in the past and it's finished and it hasn't got power over me anymore. Hmm. It won't erase the memory of the thing or or, you know, make it feel like it was a good thing that it happened necessarily. But it will it will stop it having power over you. Hmm. And that's very much the part uh, a part of the trauma experience is the feeling of the loss of power. And so the healing is then to help the person to come back into self-sovereignty, self-agency and, you know, autonomy and empowerment. 
Um, and that also means, of course, that uh, certainly in my work, it's it's very much less about me doing something to the client and more about the client experiencing themselves and then telling me what they need to do. Mm-hmm. I need to move like this now. I need to change position. I need to... Blah, blah, blah. Please, would you put your hand on my stomach? Mm. Um, it's very different than this is what you need. That's very important because I find yes. that a lot of people feel that like trauma has been done to them and then we go to yes. a therapist and something is still being done yes. to them. Yeah. And what about empowering the yeah. client to know yeah. that they are the happening, they are the doing to themselves. Absolutely. That's more empowering. If they're not in their agency... Mm. then they're not regaining their power. No. And that's ultimately what we want is to support clients to step into their sovereignty mm-hmm. so that they can go out and meet the world from that av- adult sovereign place in themselves rather than the traumatised, usually the traumatised child. Yes. Mm. So in the world of trauma or trauma medicine, let's say, do you have any constructive criticism or any feelings that where you feel that we're going wrong and how we approach it? Uh, I I think that the field of trauma has grown exponentially in the last certainly 20, maybe even the last 10 years. Mm. Um, Our understanding of it has, has exponentially increased, which is fantastic. I think that old fashioned methods of breaking through resistances and de-armoring in a in a quite violent violating way mm, de-armoring uh, ouch. <laughs> uh, yeah uh, uh, um uh you know and there's different ways to de-arm and de-armoring means lots of different things to lots mm. of different people but certainly you know kind of old school approaches to to working with that um involved like very very deep tissue very painful forced violating work mm. um and yes, they brought up emotions, but they also had a quite a strong propensity to re-traumatize people. Mm. And, you know, it doesn't feel ethical to me if you're saying, well, seven times out of 10, it's really effective. Three times out of 10, people get traumatized, but mostly it's good. Mm. You know, rule number one should be Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. Mm. So anything that shows a likelihood of doing some harm to people, we need to rethink those techniques. So I think it's really important to um, be much more gentle, be much more loving to yourself as a practitioner and, to, and to, as you know, toward the client. And remember that defences exist for a reason. Mm. They're not there to be smashed. No. Um, it's a bit like, you know, if a guy's broken his leg and he's leaning on his crutch, you wouldn't kick the crutch away from under him mm-hmm. and say, you need to walk now. You, no. you know, he, the crutch is there because he can't walk. Mm-hmm. So... You know, you need to you need to love the defences into softness mm-hmm. rather than push them, make them harder or try and smash through them. Mm. But I'm very excited about the developments that have, you know, come to light in science and, and therapeutic approaches for the last few years around trauma. It's obviously a hot topic right now. Yes. Um, I'm very interested also in um, how we heal collective trauma. Because collective trauma is something that we are all experiencing. Um, like I said, you know, in, including at the planetary level right now. And I think collective trauma um, needs to be healed collectively. Mm. 
kind of sounds obvious, but yes. there's lots of people I've met who are like, I'm feeling all the pain of women around the world through the centuries and it's too much. It's like, yeah, of course it's too much. Mm. It's not your job as an individual to no. feel all of that horrific trauma mm. um, or the, the trauma of the planet as it's being despoiled. But what we can do is in larger and larger groups, we can start to create a bit of coherence around our experience collectively Mm. So that we each hold a tiny part of that and we don't feel overly burdened with like, it's my job to channel all the pain of women throughout history and heal <laughs> all of that trauma because your system will blow a fuse. Mm. It's not a good idea. No, it's not possible. It's not possible. So collective trauma can be healed and there's a lot of amazing work being done by Thomas Hubel in Germany and while well, he travels, but um, around collective trauma healing. Um but that's certainly a very interesting field, I think, and mm -hmm. one that I think increasingly we need to become aware of yes. so that we're not just healing our own trauma, but also the inherited trauma, the collective trauma at various different levels, whether that's gender, race, nationality, or, you know, the humanistic trauma of mm. being on this planet in the state of chaos that it is right now. If someone was looking for a therapist in trauma, what would your tips be to ensure? I mean, that's a lot of fear that I hear around mm. people that they've been mm. to someone before mm. and it actually re-traumatised them. Mm. So mm. what would you say is important to look for? Make sure they've got a trauma therapy training, quite simply. Yes. Um, make sure they've got some kind of professional trauma therapy training yes. so that they understand... The, you know, the basic therapeutic tenets of safe container, of boundaries, um, of ethics, make sure that the person is trauma informed in their work, that they've done somatic trauma therapy training or somatic experiencing. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, we do a lot of teaching people in the psychosexual somatics model about how to contain and work with trauma. Um, but make sure that people have got a real trauma therapy background mm -hmm. because most people in the healing arts are very well intentioned, but there's also a lot of people who are taking cases for which they're not qualified to work with. Yeah, I'd agree with you. There's there's sexual healing. That doesn't mean it's necessarily trauma. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, no. That the person has the skill set to meet that yeah, trauma. Absolutely. And a lot of, you know, good loving intention and all the rest of it can cause an awful lot of harm. Mm. Um, and I'm sure both of us have come across a lot of cases like that in, in mm. you know, the course of our work. Um, so, you know, do they, do they, um, have a good training? How do they seem to you when you meet them or speak mm -hmm. with them on the phone? Are they, are, do they feel clear? Are they boundaried? Um, do they have a professional persona? Uh, or does it seem like it's a bit unclear what's them and what's, like what's personal and what's professional. Mm. Um, you know, all of this is stuff around around the need to create a safe container, which, of course, um, when there's an experience of trauma, the container hasn't been safe. Mm. So it's exponentially more important when dealing with trauma to create that safe container um, rather than just doing, let's just say, other sexual healing or, you know, other general healing work or even other therapy work. Because... Mm. It really is about the boundary violations. And so boundaries need to be very, very clear mm. with a trauma therapist. Mm. Thank you.
Is there anything you'd like to add to your podcast today, Mike? That you Thank really, you. Really from want to speak. Hmm, let me feel into that. I think I just want to say, um, like a clarion call to everyone, to say that we're going through perilous times. And the best thing that we can do for ourselves individually and collectively is to know who we are, to be able to fully inhabit as much of ourselves as we can, and to keep our nervous system as safely and healthily regulated as possible so that we can come into connection with others and create collaboration, cooperation and community because increasingly we're going to need to be able to do these things mm. as potentially society starts to disintegrate and break down at various levels. We need to create what Margaret Wheatley describes as islands of sanity, which are communities who are cohesive, who are able to operate together, who aren't falling apart into conflict um, and the way that we do that is by stepping more fully into our sovereignty and being able to regulate our nervous system. So it feels like, you know, this work that I have, have moved towards from, you know, working with sexuality originally has become much more about that embodiment, regulation, sovereignty, connection. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that those are the things that we're going to need if we're going to healthily survive the inevitable changes, whatever they are going to be, mm. that are coming down the pipe for us right now. Mm. Thank you. You're welcome, Michelle. Thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure. You have been listening to Brighton Talk Sex. Audio hosted by Michelle Roberton. For more information, please visit brightontalksex.com.